live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. What's Wagner's rule of life number four? Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry, I understand I might be like a dog with a bone on this, but this is just fundamentally wrong. It is an insult, but let's tee this up. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. I'm sorry, I think this is absolutely ridiculous. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Well, good afternoon. So glad to have you with us. Just saw our list of guests for the opening day extravaganza from 9 until noon tomorrow. Josh Hader, Corbin Burns, Mike Moustakis is going to join us, Mark Atanasio, Bob Eucher, as always. Look forward to that quite a bit. We're going to have David Stearns, the general manager. Craig Council is on the list. Eric Thames is on the list. Brandon Woodruff. Lots of players, lots of people in management and some of the behind-the-scenes stuff as well. Jerry Augustine, former pitcher. Jerry Augustine is just a fun guy. I always look forward to the opportunity to talk to him. Steve Scafidi and I will be in the dugout from 9 until noon tomorrow. Um, and then I'll have a, I'll go outside the stadium. I'll do a 30 minute wrap up before we turn it over to our Brewers pregame opening day. Looking forward to it. So, Gru, who's back producing the show, you enthusiastic about this season? You feel good about it? You feel good about it. Okay. I, you know, I listen to all this, this national stuff, you know, and, and, um, Brewers are getting no love. They're, they're getting no love. I mean, pretty much almost all of the national commentators, the national commentators think the pitching isn't good enough, think that they haven't, that the Cubs are better, that the Cardinals have improved themselves. So that's, uh, yeah, they write, oh, they only have one game on ESPN this season. So they're, they're absolutely getting no love, but they got no love at all last year. And maybe that is a motivating factor. My, I, I have two concerns. First of all, their opening month schedule, and we talked about this briefly yesterday, is brutal. I mean, they play they, they play 19 games against the teams in their division. So, I mean, St. Louis, which is going to be a good team, they play 10 of those 19 games in in, in late March and then early and then April. So, by the end of April, they will have played 10 of the 19 games they're going to play against St. Louis against St. Louis. They're a good team. They've got games against the Cubs. They've got a West Coast trip where they play the Los Angeles Dodgers and the uh the um Anaheim Angels, the California Angels, and then they play the Dodgers at home. So, in that first month of the year, you got games against the Cubs, you got 10 games against the Cardinals, you've got games against the Dodgers at home and away. Um it's a it is a brutal start to the season, and you, you hope that they're going to be able to get off to a good start. Traditionally, well, I mean, opening day, it seems to me, I don't remember the last game they won on opening day. I've been to lots of opening days, and it seems like they've always had trouble winning. Hopefully that will reverse tomorrow. But again, we do opening day, in my opinion, extremely well here at WTMJ, and you can pick up the coverage starting at 5 with Wisconsin's Morning News at 5 or 5.30 tomorrow morning. All right, we have a lot of ground to cover on today's show. If you want to get a head start on that, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 and a number of different postings, including some stuff that we're I'm going to talk about, but we're not necessarily going to take phone calls on. But I want to start with the story that we were discussing among ourselves yesterday that was breaking during the day, the whole Jesse Smollett situation. Now, I think everybody is probably familiar with this story. Smollett, who is both 
openly gay and African-American, the highly paid, one of the highly paid stars of the, the show Empire. All right, he's from Chicago. He said, claimed that on January 29th at 2 a.m., now let me just put this in perspective, January 29th, 2 a.m., that was one of those really bitter polar vortex, it is incredibly cold days. And, you know, the first question is, why are you on the street at 2 a.m.? Not many people are on the street at 2 a.m. when it's 10 below zero. But his story was he was walking from a Subway sandwich shop to his apartment um, in downtown Chicago about 2 a.m. on January 29th when two men walked up, yelled racial and homophobic slurs, hit him, and wrapped a noose around his neck. Smollett said they also yelled, this is Make America Great Again Country, a reference, of course, to President Donald Trump's campaign slogan, Make America Great. These allegations made worldwide headlines, right? Oh, this is terrible. This is the the evil Donald Trump people. This is these evil white people who are beating up this gay African-American man. How horrible this is. And then, of course, you had the entire Hollywood elite who took to Twitter, who took to Facebook, who denounced this. You had all these commentators who were just outraged. And this this shows how evil all those Trump supporters are. And this shows how evil all these white people are. Well, police initially treated this incident as a hate crime. But the more they started investigating it, Smollett's story fell apart. Okay, it, it just fell apart. They caught the two guys who were supposedly uh, the attackers. And it turns out that, you know, one of them is his personal trainer. By the way, they're, they're not white. They're not Trump supporters. They, they're, one of them is his personal trainer. They catch them. He says, they say that, hey, Smollett paid us. to stage the attack, and he also promised us money later. Police did an incredibly thorough investigation. They went through, they looked at all these different surveillance cameras, both public and private, um, showing what these two brothers did, the moments before the confrontation, etc., etc. And ultimately, what happened was Smollett was charged with 16 felony counts of disorderly conduct in connection with lying. Now, the case gets weird because the the Cook County State's Attorney, as I explained yesterday, that's the state's attorney is what we call district attorneys in Wisconsin. So the Cook County State's Attorney is the equivalent of, like, John Chisholm. Think John Chisholm, the district attorney. She ended up recusing herself because she was contacted early in the case by some very well well connected people on behalf of Smollett so she ended up recusing herself the other background on this state's attorney her name is Kim Fox is since she since she has been elected, she's sort of been at war with the Chicago police. She's one of these new kind of touchy-feely district attorneys who I, I think believes less in fighting crime and more in, okay, well, let's we want to be loved by the public, which is all well and good for certain positions, but it's, it's disaster if you're a district attorney. So anyhow, the issue, the, the 16 felony counts against this Jesse Smollett, right? The story yesterday is with no notice to the police department, the prosecutors announce that they are dropping charges. Smollett's a lawyer goes out and says this is he's been cleared completely. 
There's no plea agreement, nothing like this. It, he's been completely exonerated, et cetera, et cetera. The prosecutors say, well, no, that's not right. What happened is he had posted a hundred. His bond was a hundred thousand dollars. He had to post ten percent of it, so he put down ten thousand dollars. And he's he's going to do, or he's agreed to do, or he has done community service. And so that's we dropped the case. Yesterday, after that, the mayor Rahm Emanuel, former chief of staff for for Barack Obama, and the Chicago police chief, who by the way happens to be African American and who was all over the news when these charges were first issued, they come out and they are absolutely outraged. They say, "Look, we weren't consulted about this. This stinks. It is high. It, you know, it's just fundamentally wrong." And what they're essentially saying is we believe this guy is guilty as hell. We had no input on this at all. As I said yesterday, from my experience as a prosecutor, after a grand jury issues charges, it is highly, highly unusual for a prosecutor to simply dismiss all the charges. That's just that it almost never happens. And if it were to happen, it is, I think, virtually unprecedented to do it without consulting with the investigative agency. In other words, the the police department. On top of that, the district attorney's office apparently went in and and ordered the case file sealed or, or got an order saying that the case file was was sealed. So the breaking news developments is the Chicago police still incredibly unhappy about this whole thing. They have just made their files public, not the case, not the court file, but they've made their files public. And matter of fact, I just, right before the the show started, I had an opportunity to read through it quickly. It's 61 pages showing the intense and extensive investigation that the Chicago police undertook to issue these charges in this case and if you read through this there's no question that, at least in my mind that as charged this guy is guilty as hell the cook county state's attorney says well here's here's why we did what we did we never said that he was exonerated we just said we've got a lot of real crime to prosecute and we figured that it wasn't essentially worth our time continuing with these criminal charges the guy's going to forfeit ten thousand dollars and and we think that that's a fair disposition of this case 414-799-1620 that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line i think this is absolutely outrageous here you know the last thing this country needs given the racial tensions that are out there, given the tensions between, I don't know, the gay community and the the straight community, the last thing that this country needs is some high-priced, high-paid actor who fakes a beating, tries to, for whatever reason, tries to play it off as a racial hate crime, gets caught doing it. The last thing this country needs is for a district attorney's office in the face of what I think is overwhelming evidence of guilt to simply say, oh, never mind. And we're going to let him walk away by forfeiting $10,000. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. And I dare say that if this was me or if this was you, 
who was caught doing the same thing with this type of investigation. There is no way in God's green earth that over the objections or without the knowledge of the police department in a high-profile case like this, there is no way, no way at all, that a district attorney's office would walk away from this. I think this is an outrage and, candidly, Heads should roll. 414-799-1620. And, of course, some of the Hollywood elite that support this guy, they're, they're saying, oh, this is proof. This is proof that you've got this racist society out there. This is justice. Bull. 414-799-1620. Gru is lining up the calls. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 414-799-1620. Mabel in Oak Creek. Hi, Mabel. Hi, I'm listening to you. Well, I'm talking to you and listening to the WGN radio, and that's what I was doing at this time yesterday for an hour, listening to them. And they're different, um, calling people about different aspects, and this has nothing to do with what I heard yesterday. This is my own concept. I truly feel they are letting this go for now because they have a bigger fish to fry with this guy. It may not come out today or tomorrow, but I bet you a beverage, Jeff, that I'm right. Okay, you're... You're on. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, you're, fair, fair, fair enough. I tell you what, Mabel, if something like that happens, you call back and we'll make arrangements. I, I will I, I will take that bet, okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Uh-huh. No, no, I, I, I just, I mean, thanks to call. I, see, here, I mean, some people are saying that, well, you there there's, the, the feds might look at this because what the guy apparently also did is he sent a, a threatening letter to himself. Um, and so they're saying, well, maybe that, that could be a basis of federal charges. I, I would say, no, I, I think that is extremely unlikely, not because he didn't do it necessarily, but because for the federal government, and this is my perspective as a former federal prosecutor, to get involved after the underlying events have been adjudicated in the state court. And in this case, I mean, he was charged. The state's attorney's office decided to dismiss. I think it would be like lightning striking twice were the feds to get involved. Now, maybe maybe you're, maybe, maybe you're right, but that's not what anybody's saying. I, I mean, the, the state's attorney is saying the reason we did this is we because, well, we thought not because we thought he was innocent, and not because we didn't think we could prove it, but we just thought, well, nothing was going to happen to him, so we're going to get a ten thousand dollar fine, and we'll be happy, and a forfeiture, and we'll be happy with that. So, in other words, he gets to buy his way out of trouble by ponying up ten thousand dollars, and then his attorneys and his side has the, you know, has the cover to say, hey. You know, there, there was nothing to this. This is what we said all along. He's been exonerated. And you know what? I understand why they're saying that. He didn't have to acknowledge any sort of guilt at all. He just paid $10,000, was allowed to pass go, did not go to jail. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Basil in Kenosha. Basil, you're on WTMJ. Kashina. Yeah, hi. hi, Basil. Hello. My, my name is Basil, and I'm calling from Kashina. Kashina. Got it. Yeah, Kashina. And, you know... I, I'm not against police officers in, in any state, but I'm sitting here thinking to myself, sometimes cops go a little bit above the, and beyond, and I think in this case and situation, maybe the state's attorney did the police a favor down there because one and then two counts and all of a sudden 16 counts. I'm thinking maybe the police chief got a little overzealous. Maybe some police down there put their fingerprints a little bit too much in the fin- uh, all over the cookie jar. And I think it would have looked bad for the police if this would have
would have went all the way to tuition. And I think that Jesse Smollett would have had a would have had some type of lawsuit against them. Really, I mean, my thoughts are if they had the goods. And they got his hand in the cookie jar, yep. then go ahead and prosecute him. I, I agree. And Basil, I mean, look, I, I appreciate your call. And, and let me let me just say this to you. What you just said is one of the things that I think I find so scary about this entire thing. Now, with all due respect, I reject your theory completely. I, I don't think there's any examples of police misconduct here at all. Matter of fact, I've had an opportunity to review the 61 pages of police files. This isn't a situation of cops lying. This is a situation of, here, here we've got the surveillance tapes. We've got the checks. We've got all this. But unfortunately... Because of the way this was handled and what happened, there are going to be all sorts of people, Basil, who think exactly what you just said. Oh, there must be more to this. This must be these crooked cops that are out there. They had to do this because they were afraid there was something wrong. That is precisely what handling it in this way feeds into. And that is why it is so incredibly, incredibly unfair to do. The other larger question, and we're going to be talking later about another example of this, is what, what do you do about deterrent? Look, I, people who are victims of, of hate crimes and these type of beatings, that is a horrible crime. And the people who perpetrate it need to be prosecuted. All right. Well, what about the people, and it's not often, but it happens from time to time, who fake these things? If Jesse, Jesse I kept saying Jesse, Jesse Smollett faked this, he needs to be held accountable. Now, I'm not saying he goes to prison for 48 years, but for him to pay a $10,000 fine, and it's not even a fine. He didn't even have to acknowledge wrongdoing. He just kind of walks away from his bond. To allow him to skate on something like this for $10,000 is pretty much of an invitation to anybody who wants to make false claims in the future to come forward. This this is terrible. And, and that's the bottom line. Look, here's what should have happened. If they want to cut a plea deal, fine. You go to Smollett's attorneys and you say, all right, look, this is the deal. We need him to plead guilty to two felonies. And we're going to recommend no prison time because it's, you know, even though it had all this attention, we don't think he needs time. We think a uh, thousand hours of community service and we think a fine of $10,000. The judge can do what he wants. That would be the ordinary way that you handle something like this. But because he's wealthy, because he's famous, because there is a tension being given to him, because um, he has support from Hollywood and from people who want to believe that he was, in fact, a victim in the face of any sort of thing. They caved in. It is a disgrace that this happened in Chicago. And mark the tape. I don't say this very often, but I'm with Rahm Emanuel on this one. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. So glad to have you with us. I sent out a tweet about this. There's a story in the Journal Sentinel um, that I, I just, it, it, candidly, it, it, it brings back it, it brings back some of these memories um, of, of my high school experience. There's a lawsuit filed yesterday. Uh, the headline in the Journal Sentinel is, A Deviant Laboratory, Valedictorian Sues Nicolay Over Math Teacher Who Groomed Students for Abuse. I, grad, I was at Nicolay in the early 70s. I, I, went, I graduated in 1975. Nicolay High School in Glendale. At the time, now this is, this is my time, 
the they were developing the school was developing a reputation as being a national powerhouse in mathematics and the guy who was running the mathematics department was a teacher named David Johnson Johnson was just an odd duck i think a lot of the kids a lot of students thought that um and what came out what about 2 years ago now is Students, it started coming out that Johnson had molested various students, um, and these students were were from the the eighties, and apparently they had gone, they had they through their parents or whatever. You have to understand, Johnson was this incredibly powerful guy. He at, at Nicolay, they let him pretty much do what he wanted to do, and I guess now we're starting to understand what that really meant. They um he he had a he formed a magic club. He formed the hosts, and, and if you were a host at Nicolay, that was a big deal. Those were the they were like ushers and stuff. But it was something that you know, if you wanted to go to an Ivy League school, this was something prestigious to get on on your resume. And it was almost all all males, not exclusive, but almost all males. And as it kind of turns out, and you see this now in retrospect, even though I think it should have been apparent to a lot of people at the time, this was the way Johnson was recruiting and grooming people who were going to be his victims later on. Johnson, by the way, killed himself at a retirement home um, in central Wisconsin two days after th- these allegations first became public um, a couple years ago. Uh, but it was it, it was just ever since this came forward, and, and you know, Nicolay, to its credit, the, the principal or the administrator at the time, who I think who, he's passed away now, he looked the other way on all this. A lot of the school officials looked the other way on this. Apparently in the 80s, they had meetings with Johnson saying, well, you know, we, we want you, we've got these reports and we want to make sure you don't do it again. I mean, that you've got to promise us that you're not going to continue to do this. Since that happened and since the initial reports were made public, the um, a, a number of people came forward formally. I've also talked to a couple people who informally and, you know, do just, you know, it's 30 years later. They, they don't want to get involved in this type of stuff. But, I mean, these are, are people that I knew, you know, have come forward and would say Johnson would do things like he, he'd tell some of these students and, and he ran these high power math classes, which was a kind of a big deal. You want to get to college and you want to be in honors math and you want to do this. It, it might sound silly now, but it was a big it was a big deal then. And he'd do things like pick out boys and tell them that he was um, conducting experiments. And he'd say, okay, I want you to meet me like before school and come dressed in your gym clothes. And then he'd have these boys do exercises in front of him while he sat around and watched. And it, it kind of went from there. And I, I've actually talked to a couple people who you know, were part of this. And, and a lot of them just said, well, okay, this is, ju- this is just too creepy and too weird. But at the same time, it's the mid-1970s. You've got this very powerful math teacher who arguably, you know, can c- control your future. And, you know, you, you have in this incredible peer pressure as well. It's like, well, you know, everybody else loves, you know, Mr. Johnson. You don't want to, uh, you know, you don't want to do anything that's going to get, uh, you don't want to do anything that's going to get him in trouble. Just incredible peer pressure to look the other way. It just, it, the, the whole, the whole thing stunk. And it, it stunk for decades. And I bring this up again because, again, I sent out a tweet on this with a link. There's a um, one of one of the guys 
who allegedly was one of the people that made the the the, the complaint, um, he, he's now filed a, a lawsuit uh, against, you know, the school district for essentially, you know, covering, you know, this up. Here's the way the story starts. Um, Mark Bonchek was on track to graduate as valedictorian of Nicolay High School class of 1982. He badly wanted to attend an Ivy League college and believed the recommendation of the school's renowned math teacher, David R. Johnson, would make or break his admission. And so, according to a revealing new lawsuit from Bonchek, he reluctantly went along with Johnson's thinly disguised research project that became a series of weekend sexual encounters at the school. Like I say, I mean, I know somebody who was invited to exercise in front of, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, in front of Johnson. Uh, but I don't, I mean, I, I know that, found that out in the last you know year or two. As soon as he got Johnson's letter of recommendation, Bonchek stopped participating in the research. He went on to get a PhD from Harvard and founded companies focused on helping organizations adapt to digital future as a consultant and speaker, but he still suffers psychological and emotional damage from Johnson's abuse. According to a suit filed Monday in federal district court, it names his defendants Nicolay, the district, several former Nicolay board members and administrators, and the estates of some who died um yeah you I mean you can read the story like i said i've got a link to it but it's it's the bad old days and i think one of the things i i understand that sometimes we say we're too lawsuit happy and things like that but there there is no question in my mind and if i sound upset about this i am there is no question in my mind that this was going on that there were a number of people, probably a lot more than the 12 or 13 who have come forward, who were in fact molested by this pervert over the years that he was at Nicolay. And there's also no question in my mind that school administrators and teachers and other members of the administration and probably the school board either knew or should have known that he was doing this. And they chose to look the other way because, hey, this guy is this powerful guy. We're winning these math competitions, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't want to believe this. Now, you know, may- maybe, you know, maybe 40 years later, something like this wouldn't get swept under the rug. But there is no doubt in my mind that that's what happened back during the years that I was in high school. And um, I-, I don't know how you ever make it right, but... One of the things perhaps you learn is say, okay, we're, we're never going to tolerate this again. It was really the bad old days, and this continues to be an enormous stain on on my high school that they allowed this. And I say they, I mean a, I mean a lot of people, because you're never going to convince me the administrators didn't have reason to believe this was going on. Other teachers had to know this was going on. I mean, he was doing stuff like this at the school. He was having kids, boys, come in, dress in their gym clothes, and perform exercises, you know, before school. I mean, really? Really? You know, you, you know that kind of stuff is going on, but nobody nobody either cared enough or had the guts enough to stand up and blow the whistle. And it is an ongoing disgrace. I don't know how this lawsuit should turn out, but... Um, this is uh, nothing, it's actually, it's nothing to be proud of at all, that you had a school and a school district who, I, I believe, allowed this to happen. When we come back, I'm the bride, it's all about me. Stick around. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. All right, on a wedding day, 
And gentlemen, if you haven't gotten married yet, trust me on this one. On a wedding day, it's all about the bride. You understand that. Matter of fact, there's TV shows that have been, you know, become very, very famous about, you know, the, the whole bridezilla type of thing. And and there's something about a wedding and the pressure and stuff which turns even the most even-tempered, wonderful woman can make her a bridezilla. Now, I, I have not. I have, I'm not suggesting that ever happened to me. Matter of fact, my wife, my wife was absolutely wonderful before our wedding. But but it, it can cause people to do different things. At the same time, you know, the bride is supposed to be the center of attention. So here is the story. This is what a bride puts out on social media. Let me tell you the story and then get the reaction. She says, the son of one of my husband's family friends showed up to my wedding in his Marines formal wear, so his full-dress uniform, complete with his medals. Now, I have nothing against anyone in the military, but this was a black-tie optional wedding, and frankly, it felt very out of place, and it seemed like he was trying to show off. My wedding had over 300 guests, and nobody else felt the need to wear something else to make them stand out. She said, the man was, of course, acting very well-mannered and like a complete gentleman. There were even a few excited teenage girls at my wedding who wanted to take a picture with him, to which he he graciously agreed. However, however, after seeing this, the bride threw him out of, of the event. She asked him to leave for stealing her thunder. Many people were thanking him for his service, she writes. And frankly, it just felt like the only reason he wore the dress uniform was to be in the spotlight and to make it about him, which I don't think you are supposed to do at someone else's wedding. If he wants to wear that to his own wedding, it's fine. But the whole point of having a dress code at a wedding is that no one guest will stand up too much. Um, The bride said she didn't feel right having him there. And so then she goes on social media and she says, well, um, you know, was I wrong for asking him to leave? All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, so the, the wedding, it's black tie optional. She and the man is invited to the wedding. He is, I mean, he's active duty, military. He shows up in his dress blues and... He, he gets he gets attention. Teenage girls want to have their photographs taken with him. The bride, this is her day. She says, "Well, he's getting all this attention. He wasn't supposed to do that." Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Now, as far as as rules, wearing formal military wear at formal civilian events is allowed per regulations. All right. So the question is. Should he have done this? Was this an effort to steal attention from the bride? And did the bride have every right to say, what's this guy doing? This day is supposed to be all about me. Or is this, was she legit in throwing him out? Or is this a bad sign for her future husband that moving forward, uh, <laughs> things are going to be all downhill from here? 414-799-1620. Let me take a quick break. Rue is lining up the calls. We will discuss in just a minute who's right, who's wrong, the bride or the Marine who showed up in full dress blues. Stick around. 
This is Jeff Wagner. Mike and Fond du Lac text. Jeff, OMG, I can't believe that someone could be that self-centered. The Marine wore his dress blues. They're considered formal wear. If he had just worn his dress uniform, perhaps the bride would have been judged. He would have, the bride would have judged the Marine not to be dressed up. On that one final comment, I pity the groom. Lisa in Johnson's Creek. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? I am well. Okay, is this bridezilla? Does the groom need to be worried about where we go from here, or did she have a, have a point? Definitely. Oh, my gosh. I would run as fast as I could. In my wedding, my brother was an usher, and he's in the Air Force, and he wore his formal, and I told him to wear that because I'm so proud of him. I think this groom should run as fast as he can. <laughs> But but he took but Lisa he took all this attention away from the bride and this was her special day. She, she the woman has serious problems. How could she be so self centered? I, when I heard this story, I was just dumbfounded. My jaw just dropped <laughs> to the ground. Well, well, there's someone that's that much of a diva. Well, you know exactly. So clearly, she wants a a formal type of wedding. Um, it, right. it, you know, normally, you would think you'd be upset because oh, somebody came underdressed. In this particular case, I mean, the guy obviously made quite an impression. He was dressed extremely well, and it took attention right. away from her. You know, if you want all the attention to be on the bride, say, come wearing blue jeans and and t shirts right. or something like that. Right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, she's ridiculous. Okay. She's absolutely ridiculous. Okay. Thanks for the call, Lisa. Says bridezilla groom, watch out, Daryl on the north side. Daryl, you're on WTMJ. Oh, uh, yes, good afternoon. Hi, Daryl. Uh, I'm a proud Marine and proud Coast Guard. That's what they taught us to wear. And I have no idea where that woman is coming from. That's the strangest thing I think I've heard in years. <laughs> so, so, so if you get invited to a formal event, your way of, hey, this, this, I'm not going to wear a tuxedo. I'm wearing my dress blues. This is what I am supposed to do here. It's not like you're trying to show anybody up. You're trying to show up in the spirit of the invitation. No doubt, no doubt. I mean, it's, it's, again, like this guy, he really needs to get on his car, get in his car, and go south. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Th- thanks for the call. I mean, I, I guess that would be kind of my reaction too. Now, look, I, I've been, you know, I've, I've been married twice. My first wife passed away, and and you know, both of the weddings have pretty much gone with. Now, there's always like you know little hitches or something you're afraid might go wrong or something like this. I, I've, I, can't, I can't imagine that this would be one of the issues that, gee, you know, we might have invited some friends whose son is in the military and he shows up in the dress blues. I would actually be honored, honored if, if you know, oh, that you thought enough to get dressed up in that fashion to attend my wedding. Mark on the south side. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. Um, I'm a wedding photographer and okay. a um, so I'm looking at this from the same side. As a wedding photographer, you would not believe the number of bridezillas out there. That's not bad. The problem is they're self-centered about their whole day, and they, in fact, should be. But when they start intruding on other people's um, life, and that is, being a veteran, if I had shown up in my blues, I think I would have been proud of myself, proud of what I'm doing, and proud to show her that I honored her. Yeah. Quite understand why the bridezilla would. Uh, <laughs> we had a grandmazilla this weekend, and she was she was on the off the wall. Um, I wasn't positioning this person right, and the wrong person was there from that family, and this person was. I mean, bridezillas and grandmazillas. It is a big day, granted, but doing twenty some weddings a year, I find um, 
it's the only thing that turns me off about doing weddings. Right, that, that you have, right, and they, they said, look, and I understand you want everything to go right. Believe me, I, I, I get all that, but at the same time, sometimes you just have to roll with it. I wonder how she would have felt if, what if instead of it being uh, a guy who showed up in his marine dress blues with the medals and stuff like that, since it was it, it was you know black tie optional, what if it had been somebody who showed up, maybe somebody who had a degree of fame or something like that, maybe he'd been on TV or the movies, showed up, just a stunningly looking guy and a great looking guy in a tuxedo, and then you had all the teenage girls who, oh my gosh, look at how handsome this guy is, and, and they they wanted to you know have their pictures taken with him i mean where where do you draw the line do you say okay well no um we want you to be we, we want you to show up it's black tie optional we'd like you to come in tuxedos unless you look too good in those tuxedos in which case you know you might take some attention from me i, I swear i'm i'm not making this story up and i i'm sure i, I sympathize with mark uh, about being the wedding photographer my guess is Never heard the term Grandmazilla, but I'm sure there is something like that. And by the way, I understand it's a big day, and I understand that the bride needs to be the center of attention. At the same time, if this is what's going to trip your trigger, I don't know. I think I'm with a number of you. This is a message to the husband that, you know, maybe there's still time to get this bad boy annulled. I am just saying. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. If you were wondering what that discussion that was going on in the courtroom was all about, it was essentially the defense attorneys covering their butts. Here, here, here's the deal. You, you Believe it or not, you can't simply go into a court in a criminal matter and simply say, I'm guilty. And the judge says, great, you're, you're guilty, and you move on. What you have to do is you have to have there, – there's always an extensive hearing because the judge has the requirement of making certain that if you are, in fact, pleading guilty, that guilty plea is knowing and voluntary. So, in other words, you have to – the, it's an extended discussion that the judge will have with any criminal defendant – any criminal defendant, but especially in in a case like this where you're talking about first-degree intentional homicide, the judge will make sure that before he accepts a plea of guilty or she accepts a plea of guilty, that you, that is the defendant, understands what their various rights are. You have the right to a trial. You have the right to have, uh, you know, evidence presented against you. You know, you have a right to a jury. If you don't want a jury, you can have a judge decide it. The the belief has the jury has to be unanimous beyond a reasonable doubt to believe that you're guilty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there has to be a knowing and voluntary waiver of your rights. In this particular case, you've also got these defense attorneys who are, in some respects, trying to make a record to cover their butt because they don't want to have. All right, so the guy is convicted. He's sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and he's sitting in prison three years later or five years later or ten years later, and he decides, hey, I want to file a federal habeas corpus petition. My rights were violated. I think I had ineffective assistance of counsel. My attorneys didn't tell me this or they didn't do this or whatever. So that's why the one of the defense attorneys was saying, all right, we – we just want to make a record here. 
we, we've discussed all these various things. We don't have all the discovery information, but from the beginning, he told us he's guilty. We haven't reviewed everything, but everything that we have reviewed tells us that, you know, yes, this is, he, he's guilty. We've discussed, do you want us to try to, you know, switch judges? Do you want us to try to move to suppress your confession? We've discussed all this stuff with him, and he says, no, he just wants to plead guilty. We've discussed, you know, should we pursue whether he's, is there an insanity defense that's out there? You know, so they're, they're just making that record to, again, try to protect themselves to make sure that, you know, three years from now, somebody doesn't come back and say, we, we've got to reopen this whole thing because he received ineffective assistance of counsel and they shouldn't have let him plead guilty and those type of things. So that what was going on there. He will, my guess, the, they're not going to charge him with anything in connection with Douglas County. These charges relate to the, the murder of the young girl's parents and the kidnapping. Um, they're, they're not, I presumably, I think they're not going to charge him now with anything to have to do while he was holding her hostage in Douglas County. But I would be shocked, absolutely shocked if the sentence is anything other than life in prison without parole. And it, it, it's tough to, I mean, it's tough. This is not certainly a happy ending. This was a horrible thing. Two people are dead. But I think for many of us, when this case first occurred and you heard that the woman, the girl had been abducted and, you know, they they didn't know where she was for any length of time. I I think, you know, most people probably, while you had hope that she's still alive, I think a lot of people were, were genuinely surprised that she turned out to be alive. All right. A lot of ground to cover on this in this hour and in the next hour of the program as well. Quick reminder, opening day broadcast is tomorrow. I've just seen the list of the guests that Steve Scafidi and I have lined up to uh, talk to between 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock. And Bob Buecher, Mark Antanasio, Josh Hader, Mike Moustakis, I'm telling you, um, it really, David Stearns, the general manager. I have a question for David Stearns. You know, Gru is producing the show. You know what I want to ask him? All right. Are 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 we going to get Kimbrel? Are we going to? Are they going to go out? The the Brewers bullpen, which was one of the strengths, kind of a question mark now. Corey Knable, who was the closer, he's he's probably out for the season. They're not saying that, but my guess is he's out for the season. Uh, Jeremy Jeffress, um, he's got a shoulder problem. So um, the, you've got you know a future Hall of Fame reliever, Craig Kimbrel, who's on. Who's uh, was saving games for the Boston Red Sox last year? He's still on the free agent market, and I think he would look great in a Brewers uniform. We'll ask David Stearns about that. I'm sure he'll be thrilled to hear that question. All right. Whenever lawmakers come up with laws, they always try to find catchy and appealing names for them. Obamacare is the Affordable Care Act. Who could be against affordable care for anyone? So earlier this week. Um, in Congress, you had a number of Democrats who introduced something called the Equality Act. Who could be against equality? As a matter of fact, a number of the, the Hollywood elites have already come out and support this. Uh, Sally Field, she was all over Twitter yesterday and, and all over YouTube talking about how wonderful that this is. It's the Equality Act. And it's being sold as an extension of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to people who are gay and transgender. Okay, so we're going to extend federally 
all the civil rights protections that we currently give based on race, we're going to extend them based on sexual orientation. Who could be against that? And, and to ex- an extent, there there is a point. I mean, you know, I, do, do you think I can't? I don't think anybody would argue that landlords should, for example, be able to evict tenants because of their sexual orientation, or that an employer should be able to fire somebody, you know, based on their sexual orientation. I don't think anybody has any problems with that. But that's not just what this bill does. The bill prohibits discrimination based on gender identity. Um, So here's the idea. Any biological males, all right, so you've got guy parts, who self-identify as female. You've got guy parts, but you self-identify. I I know I am a boy biologically, but I consider myself to be a girl. Under this Equality Act, anybody who self-identifies would be legally entitled to enter women's restrooms, locker rooms, and protected facilities such as battered women shelters. In addition... Um, under this, biological boys who self-identify as girls would automatically, under the law, in all 50 states, gain instant entitlement to compete on girls' teams in, in any sort of athletic thing. No more discussion of accommodation, you know, no more issues of fairness, no debate about whether, um, you know, we should really allow, you know, girls scholarships and trophies to go to male athletes. No, no more of that. You know, if you self-identify as a as a girl, even if you're a boy and you say, I want to play on the girls basketball team, you get to do it. School has no right to say it. That's what this is about. So it's not just about saying, hey, we're going to extend certain protections to people based on sexual orientation, something that I don't think any of us would disagree about. But but the whole idea that now in the law, you would codify the fact that if you have a guy and I want to talk about one aspect of this, because this would apply to health clubs. It would apply to locker rooms all over the country. This law would mean that if I am a guy, biologically a guy, and I say I self-identify as a woman, and I want to go use the woman's locker room at the health club, I want to use the woman's locker room at the sauna, I get to do that, and it's protected by law. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Businesses wouldn't be able to say no. Schools wouldn't be able to say no. It would just be codified in law that whatever you self-identify as, whatever gender, you get to do it regardless of what body parts you have. So for let's let's take the perspective of females. You have a health club membership. All right. You go to one of the numerous health clubs there. You walk into the locker room or you walk into the sauna and there's there's a guy, biologically a guy, who identifies as a girl, but he's got biological parts. He's got boy parts. The health club would have to allow that to happen. It would be illegal discrimination to say otherwise. You've got your, I don't know, you've got your six- or seven-year-old daughter with you, and you're going to swim class. 
So you take her into the woman's locker room because you're going to do the, the changing. And there at the end of the bench, there is somebody, boy body parts, biologically a guy, identifies as a girl and decides that they want to be there. All right, should this be a matter of law? 414-799-1620. Now, I understand there, there might be health clubs and stuff who decide, okay, this is what our policy is going to be, and, you know, we're, we're going to, business-wise, we're making the decision that we're going to accommodate people in this fashion. But should they have to? Should it be a civil right? Or is this different, say, than the color of your skin? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, do we need the Equality Act that would essentially say, use whatever locker room you want, use whatever sauna facility you want based on how you self-identify, and if other people are uncomfortable with this, it's their problem. 414-799-1620. Tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Yvonne in Milwaukee. Yvonne, good afternoon. Hi, how are you? Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. What do you think? Um, As I told your screener, I don't have a problem with a person feeling that they're a man or a woman. What Mm -hmm. I have a problem with, if I'm in the changing room, whether it be by myself or with my child, how do I know that that person isn't only using that to get in the changing room? Right. You don't. And, and really is not, um, what would you call, transgender. Well, right, you, you, right, you, you don't because it's self-identified. But, but even, even, even the bigger point, Yvonne, um, let's say that you're, you're with your six-year-old daughter or your, you know, your, your six-year-old granddaughter, and, and you're getting ready, you're in the locker room, you're going to change, you're going to go swimming. Maybe, maybe you don't want your six-year-old daughter seeing naked guys regardless of how they identify (laughs) maybe you just don't want to be walking in and there's naked guys there i mean because you don't want your six-year-old daughter to be seeing that i guess i just don't think that is an unreasonable position for somebody to take you know jeff i feel the same way i'm old enough i have great grandchildren okay (laughs) i would not in any way shape or form want any child to do that well well, right no they're too innocent and there's a time and a place for everything. Well, well, there is. I mean, right, I thanks the call. And this isn't about body shaming. or This isn't even the question. I know some people get hung up on the thing about, oh, are you suggesting that somebody who is, you know, transgender or whatever, are you suggesting that they're more likely to be a molester or something? No, see, that's not the point. It, it's, to me, boys and girls are different. I mean, they, they have different body parts. They have different physical structures and, and things like that. They, they are just, they are different. And there's a time and a place, and I just, I can imagine, I mean, I've made this point when we've talked about the the high school locker rooms. I can easily see a situation where you have a a 14-year-old girl, for example, 14-year-old young woman who's, I I don't know, maybe a little bit uncomfortable about taking her clothes off, period, much less taking her clothes off if you've got two biological males at the end of the bench. I I mean, but, but this law... Would say, okay, no, no more allowing high schools to figure this out. No more allowing high schools the option of maybe providing alternative accommodations. This law, the Equality Act, would say, as a matter of law, 
you have, if you self-identify as a male or a female, regardless of what your body is, you get the chance, you have an absolute right under the law to go wherever you want to go and do whatever you want to do. And if other people have hang-ups about that, it's their problem. All right, well, I don't, I think that goes too far. I, I, I just, I, I do. I think there has to be a balancing act that goes on here. And I am. I'm trying to picture the situation of, all right, you know, you've got your eight-year-old grandchild and you want to take her to the health club and you walk into the women's locker room to change and there's a 35-year-old naked man who might identify as a female, but a 35-year-old naked man. I think that that causes or has the potential to cause certain issues. And I certainly think the health club should have the right to say one way or the other, no, I'm sorry, if you've got boy parts, you either have to use a separate changing room or you use the male locker room. I mean, that's just how I feel. Maybe I'm hopelessly old-fashioned. John in Muskego. John, you're on WTMJ. Hey. Good Hi, John. afternoon. Um, when I look at it, I kind of look at it a similar way to you. Um, and in another way also, from what you said, while you know they identify as a, either a man or a woman and transgender, it's almost like they're creating themselves another class you know sex class and so to make an accommodation for them to say you know hey this is where either transgender men or transgender women change that's fine and i think that's something that we should strive to do because you know you want to have people feel comfortable absolutely i don't see where you can have you know make 20 people feel uncomfortable and have anxiety about it because one person has anxiety about it you know changing in what their born sex was right i i thanks for call. i agree with you completely i mean i remember there was a story um out of one of the local colleges a year or two ago and it was a, a guy and, and i say guy he's he because he hadn't he hadn't done any of the, he hadn't started as i recall taking the hormone stuff and all and none of that stuff he was he looked like a guy and he wanted to go sit naked in the women's sauna and, and the college was saying no you know we're this is making other people uncomfortable it's not a co-ed sit naked in the sauna thing or, or whatever it was and they said no we're not going to let you in there and it kind of became a, a cause celeb again i'm with you 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 don't want i'm not arguing that the people should be made to un, uncomfortable but this would as a matter of law say you've got an absolute right to do this and we didn't even get into in this discussion the whole idea of of boys playing on on girls teams all right you know you say hey um okay i'm i'm a basketball player in high school i'm not good enough to make the boys team but i'm still pretty decent i self-identify as a girl i want to play on the girls volleyball team or the girls uh or the girls base baseball team or the girls um softball team or the girls basketball team i mean is do we really need to go that far and i would argue no this is jeff wagner Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Yeah, Gru, you missed that conversation. Um, Melissa, before she became an outstanding radio reporter and all that, um, she said she worked part-time at a, at, a, at a gym, like a YMCA or something like that. I, I imagine... Imagine anybody who's done that has probably great stories about stuff that happens in the locker rooms and things like that. Just, just saying, she was sharing a couple of those. All right, I've got a, I've got a Fran story. Fran is my wife. Got, a, got a Fran story here. Um, I always give that head, heads up because my wife knows absolutely everybody, and they always love the Fran stories. All right, my the the only unlike me who will has a wide taste in alcoholic beverages. 
I mean, I, I like... I mean, I like good bourbons. I like, I like bad bourbons as well. Drink beer. I'll drink wine. Um, martinis. I, I have been known to have martinis. One is not enough, but two is too many. I, you know, so I, I am eclectic. My, my wife is not like that. She, she is a Chardonnay girl. She, she only drinks Chardonnay. And what I found is because she doesn't like, like high alcohol type of stuff, what she does is that she will order a glass of Chardonnay and she will order a glass of ice on the side. And so she she waters down the Chardonnay. She'll she'll take the glass of Chardonnay and she'll put ice in it. That that that's it. That that's how that's how she drinks it. Now I have been told, she's told me that over the years, every once in a while she's gotten the stink eye from bartenders or stuff who say, Oh, this is a this is a good this is a good glass of wine. You're gonna put you're gonna put ice in it. To which my feeling has always been, once you buy it, it, it's yours. I mean, if I, if, you know, if, (laughs) if I like to put milk in my bourbon, all right, so I buy a $12, you know, drink a bourbon, and if I want to put milk in it, I I, I get to put milk in it. Once I buy it, it's mine. And, you know, if, if I, I've never, ever, ever looked down on people, oh, you know, you, you're not supposed to drink, you know, bourbon that way or whatever. I don't care if, if once you buy it, I believe that it's yours, you know, and, and nobody else should be able to tell you what to do with it as long as it's not affecting them. So if people want to buy a $15 glass of wine and they want to put ice in it, go with God. That it's, it's theirs. Once you buy it, it's yours. And I don't think as a general rule, people should be able to tell you otherwise. So I have always vigorously defended my wife when she puts, you know, ice in her Chardonnay. All right. I don't put ice in my wine, but but that's okay. That doesn't matter. There's probably stuff that I do that perhaps purists. I I have a I have an example of that. I have at home a very very high end bottle of of bourbon that I got for a special occasion. That it was. If you had bought it retail, it would be stupid money, and I would have never paid what the retail cost of the bourbon was. But but I didn't. I got a special deal on this, so it's fine. And so a friend of mine was over the other day, and we, we, we it was kind of a special occasion. We were each going to have just a little bit of the bourbon, and I I put ice in it. I put an ice cube in both of them, and he yelled at me. He said, you don't put ice in this. And so I said, sorry. Well, I, I, I guess I did. But, I mean, I like to drink it with ice. So, okay, that that's my basic philosophy. Well, let us now switch and see if that holds up. There is a story out of the community that I formerly lived in, Whitefish Bay. And it's in the paper today, and it's a follow-up on what we talked about before. In Whitefish Bay, and I guess in Shorewood and part of Milwaukee, you know, one of the Tony areas is, is along Lake Drive, uh, especially the east side of Lake Drive, where you have views of the lake. And that's where you see a lot of the mansions and a lot of the really, really well-off people live. And I guess Lake Drive runs up through Fox Point and things like that. So people like to live on the lake. So here's here's the story. This guy who um, owns a whole bunch of Popeye's restaurants. So the, the Journal Sentinel's headline describes him as a Popeye's mogul. All right? So he's got a ton of money. And, and what happens is he lives He's got a big house on Lake Drive that he sells to a, a Bucks player, I think is what happened. And what he does is he buys the property next door, right, that's got a house that was built in 1928. The problem with the house is, first of all, it, it's, it's turned the wrong way to get the maximum views of the lake. 
normally if you so let's say a house is a is a rectangle normally if you live on the lake what you want is you want the long side of the rectangle to be along the property so you want that facing the, the lake not the narrow side well this particular house the way it, it sits on the property is it sits so like you've got an end of the house that has a, a view of the lake um, but but not as much as you would other, uh, otherwise would. So the house is situated to not take advantage of the property. The house also was built in 1928. And, and here's, here's the bottom line, and I've said this before. Not everything old is necessarily worth preserving. Because what happens is you know, o- older houses are great, but there, there's limitations. I mean, you've got old wiring. You've got all sorts of things. There is limitations as to what you can do to an older house. And what I found, and this is from the perspective of somebody who lived in an older house for 30 years, they're, they're great. They've got all sorts of stuff. But there's always challenges. Now, granted, if you have enough money, you can probably make stuff work. But in certain respects, having newer construction, it's just easier to get around and it's easier to do things. You lose the char- some of the charm of the older house, but that's it. So anyways, this guy, he sells his place on Lake Drive. He buys the house next door to his. And again, it's, it's on this lot, but it's situated funny, so you don't get enough views of, of the lake. Um, he pays dot 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 dot. I have it here. I think he he pays. What does he pay? Like one point nine million dollars, I think, for for the house and the property. One point six five million for the house and the property. And this is a house that's built in nineteen twenty eight. It's by a famous architect, you know, um, uh, architect who designed the Holy Hill Monastery, um, the American Club in Kohler. And the great chapel at St. Joseph's Convent on South Layton Boulevard. So it's a famous, the, the house in its of, in and of itself is not historically significant. It, it's, it's designed by a famous architect. Okay? So that's the deal. Pays $1.65 million for the property. The house itself is kind of a disaster in addition to it not you know, facing the right way on the property, it, it's a 1928 house, and the the heating and air conditioning isn't good. You know, it's just it's in bad need of repair, and to try to update it would probably cost about one. They estimate would cost in the neighborhood of 1.2 million. So between the 1.65 million you've got into buying the house and another 1.2 million to renovate it you know you're pushing three million dollars and even if you renovate it and even with a great property you don't have a three million dollar property so what the guy wants to do is he wants to tear it down he says i'm just gonna i want to tear down the house and i want to build a new house and i want to have the new house and it's going to be situated right on the property and it's going to be new and it's going to have all these modern type of things and and that's how i want to do it whitefish bay now whitefish bay has this thing called the arc um the architectural preservation committee and this is one of four houses that is um the it, it's it's listed it's not on the national register of historic places but it's on the village's registry of historic places and if you're one of a handful of houses that fall on this in this range 
what happens is you're not allowed to demolish the building. You can't do a teardown unless then there's these zoning rules that say that you have to, um, let's see, you, you can't demolish the property unless you make good faith efforts for 60 days to find a buyer who agrees to preserve, relocate, or otherwise rehabilitate the historic building. So in other words, even if you want to live there, you and even if it's yours, you own it, you can't tear this down, you have to try to find somebody to buy it. You have to sell it first. And now the issue is whether or not he, he legitimately was trying to sell it or not. But the bottom line is what the guy wants to do is he wants to tear it down and build a new house on this lot. And the village is saying, no, you're not going to be allowed to do that unless you make a good faith effort to sell it. All right, our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Some people might consider it to be a sacrilege for my wife to take a good glass of wine and put ice in it. But my position is, you know, she bought it. That's how she likes to drink her wine. She gets to do that, and nobody should second-guess that. Here is my question. This ordinance, I understand what the ordinance says, but does this ordinance strike you as being right? Does this strike you as being legal? If somebody buys a house, should they have the right to do whatever they want with it? And that mean, if that means they want to tear the thing down and put something new up, should they have the right to do it without the village, the city, whatever, messing around with it? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should this guy have to jump through these hoops? Should he be forced to try to sell the property before he tears it down? Or since he bought it, should he be able to do whatever he wants with it? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 147. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're back. 414-799-1620 is our number. Ron in Wisconsin Rapids. Hi, Ron. You're first. Hi, Jeff. You know, I'm not a big fan of homeowners associations and government regulations. Uh, I think I just read from still there. I'm sorry, Ron, your cell phone dropped out. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Rudy in New Berlin. Rudy, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Enjoy your show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I, I kind of chuckled when when this came up because, uh, you know, I my question here is, you know, did he check ahead of time to see if his home was on this uh, uh preservation list because i've been watching shows on uh on one of the stations uh preservation that they're doing in england and scotland and you wouldn't believe it i mean of course these countries are so much older uh they used to let people tear homes down and then they said they well we're losing our heritage right and now they're making people go in i mean if a house was built in the 1700s 1600s they have to use the same tiles on the roof <laughs> if they want to restore it they can't move the windows and uh, so apparently we're not the only people that do this. Yeah. Now, he says that he was aware that it was on this list, but he didn't realize exactly what that meant. Now, I, I you know, I, I got to tell you something, Rudy, I, where I currently live, I, I live in a side by side condo. And, and my 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 house does not cost anywhere near you know one point six five million dollars. But before I bought that, I made darn sure. I mean, I I actually sat down and I looked at the regs. What does this mean? What can you do? What can't you do? Etc. If the guy in fact paid one point six five million dollars for a house without checking what this meant, 
I, you know, he, he, I guess he get, deserves what he gets. Yep. But, but big picture, do you think government should be telling somebody, hey, you, you can't tear this down? Do you, do you, I, I, wanna, I kind of want to talk about the big picture. Well, I, I guess I look at it from, you know, if you, like, like we just did with the Bradley Center. I mean, of course, that was only 30 years old. Right. Uh, if we te- tear down all of our buildings and we don't have some rules, and I can understand what they're going through in, uh, in England and, and that, you lose all your heritage and, uh, you lose the, 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 maybe some of the people, the architects, they design things a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and you, when you look back through the history, you can, you can tell by, if it was built in the, like for our case, in the 1930s or 1920s, you can actually see where the differences were. And if you let everyone tear it down, we're going to somewhat lose that history. Yeah, no, thanks. Oh, that that that's that is definitely one of the risks you run. The flip side is, you have homes that that become functionally obsolete. And okay, in this particular case, it's by a noted architect. I haven't been in this particular house. I know where it is, but I haven't been in the particular house. And the owner says it's going to take 1.2 million to just get this thing livable. It's in it's in really really bad shape, and we'd be better off. I mean, my guess is if you tore it down for 1.2 million in construction costs, you could build a nicer, more modern type of thing. But it wouldn't be by that architect, Mike in Whitefish Bay. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What do you think? Yeah, so this is uh, definitely a very interesting topic. Um, someone that's lived in Whitefish Bay for the last 15 years now um, and someone who's a professed a libertarian, it's really uh, interesting because as someone who loves the free market, do what you want when you buy something. Yeah, sure. If my wife wants I, to put ice in her Chardonnay, <laughs> she gets to put ice in her Chardonnay, right? <laughs> exactly. Do what you want. Um, but on, honestly, in this one, I think I kind of side with the village a little bit. For this reason is the reason you move to Whitefish Bay or Shorewood or these areas is because of the differentiation of these old homes or the preserved character, and you're not just moving, you know, somewhere in Lake Country or anywhere else in the metro. So it, it's, mm-hmm. it's tough. It's a conflict of both sides. I see both sides, but this one I think I actually kind of, you know, side with the village a little bit, and they just want to keep that uh, character to the village and, and keep mm-hmm. that intact. I know, uh, you know, I think it's been happening over the last couple of years. A lot of people have been buying properties, putting new homes on them, especially around the Whitefish Bay High School right. area. And I think that's something that kind of erodes that character. So I, I kind of side with the village a little mm-hmm. better. What if it's, well, and in this particular case, like I say, the guy, it, it's, I, I think they, they knew or they should have known that there was this restriction that was on there. At, at, and, and, and what they're saying is, they're not saying it can't be torn down. They're saying, though, that you have an obligation to try to make a good faith effort to find a buyer who will want to live in it. And if you can't at that point in time, then you can tear it down. So, I mean, it's not absolute. Now, thanks for coming. I, I do understand that you, you don't want to – see, I, here's the problem I have with this. Not everything that's old is historic, and, and I guess that's where – I, I kind of wrestle with this. One of the things going on in Milwaukee nowadays is there you, you've got some people who are trying to, gee, we, we're, we're, they're going to sell the journal building, and, and we're not sure that you know we like who they're going to sell it to, so we're going to make the sale more difficult. We're going to put these restrictions on because we're going to declare it a historic building, so this thing has to end up being protected. We're going to put limitations on it. Not everything that's old is historic, and I guess that's – that's part of the larger issue that I have. But again, the guy did know this, or at least he should have known this. Let's talk to Danny and Nina. Danny, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Hi, Dan- hey, Hi Danny. Yeah, I kind of, I, I, 
I guess uh, I kind of agree with it all, what everyone said so far. I, mean, my, I kind of see it both ways. I mean, we, you know, the, the, there obviously was an ordinance in place for this guy. And being the, the simple fact that he's lived in that area, you know, and he is, obviously, he's done his research on life in general. He's done this well in life. Right. He's a Popeye guy. Right. He should have known that before he ever bought this thing. Uh, but devil's advocate to the, to the, you know, these people that are doing this, you know, sometimes they stick their fingers too deep into things, and if people are going to spend especially that much money on a piece of property, you know, they should have the ability to change things up as they so please. I mean, I feel like the, the zoning laws, these different laws keep getting stricter and stricter, you know, everywhere across the country. I mean, my grandma and grandpa live on a farm in Minnesota, and they can't build a new barn because of zoning laws, right. but they own 20 acres of land. Right. And I feel, you know, it's just, they just get too deep into it. Uh, but at the same time, shame on this guy for not doing his research. Well, or, or thanks to call or or doing his research, and, and like I said, he he says he didn't know. The, the lawyer in me I, again. I like I say, I my house nowhere near one point six five million dollars. Uh, but but enough of an investment that I, I want I wanted to know. And I'm not. I don't claim to be the smartest bear or the best, you know, lawyer. I never did real estate law, but I wanted to look. I looked at all the different stuff, asked a couple questions. Okay, what am I going to be able to do? What am I not going to be able to do? And then ultimately decided, okay, fine, this, this is great. I'm willing to play by these rules. Now, that's a whole condo. That's a condo association, not a zoning type of thing. But it, it's the same sort of situation here. I guess. I, I here's how I I look at this. On the one hand. To the same degree that a number of the points that a number of you have made, I agree with the concept. I, I think that, as a general rule, if you buy it, you should be able to do what you want with it. That is my basic premise. I, I do think for truly historic buildings, maybe you give them some special protection. But I, I wrestle with the idea of, of have we, you know, what is truly historic. You know, is something truly historic because it's actually an ordinary house and it was it was built by a, a renowned architect. But because, OK, the house is in disrepair, the house is poorly situated on the lot. The value is decreasing because of that. But gee, it was a famous architect, so we have to preserve it. My big beef is I, I think we consider way too much stuff to be, quote unquote, historic and attach protections to it and put limitations on the ownership. In this particular case, the guy knew it or should have known what he was getting into. So, I mean, the rules say you got to make a good faith effort to sell it before you could tear it down. Story in the paper today kind of raises questions about whether a good faith effort to sell it. He obviously wants that particular property and he's got visions for the property, but I, I think you have to jump through the hoop. So I'm not too sympathetic to this individual. Bigger picture, I think sometimes in these communities we're we're going overboard in trying to decide what's historic and what isn't. And not everything that's old is in fact historic. Stick around, we've got a lot of stuff coming up on today's program. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Melissa, I'm feeling old. Why are you I, well, feeling old? Well, okay, Jordy Nelson. You know, you were Jordy Nelson. I just said that to your producer. I said thirty-three. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it just. I mean, I'm just feeling old. It just. It, well, I mean, here, here's the deal. I mean, it, it just, it shows how time just goes by mm-hmm. in, in an instant. I mean, Jordy Nelson was drafted. He was a second round draft pick in 2008, and you know that was. 
that was the the year. It was like Aaron Rodgers' first real year as the quarterback. Sure. You know, so he came in. Uh, they finished six and ten, missed the playoffs, and, and then they went on that just historic run. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I I remember it. It seems. It seems really like yesterday, like yesterday yeah. right? That yeah, you, know, you had Jordy Nelson, and now you just kind of blink, oh. and it's you know an eleven-year career, and he's retired. It's also one of the reasons why, even with the crazy money that these athletes get, mm-hmm. you, you, I really never begrudge them that because the, the career is—it's short-lived, right? Very much right. so. And there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, a lot of people are talking about CTE, the brain damage that can right. potentially Football, yeah. happen. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of a lot of risk too. Yeah, it, it is, and, and you know, I mean, you know, Jordy Nelson, an eleven-year career. That's that's way longer oh, than the yeah. average football player. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you did, but I think if you look at the NFL, the typical career is for the the average player, what probably two or three years, where where they're in and then they're they're just gone. And they have to figure out what they want to do with their life. So I, I, I mean. It just it just seems like it went by. <laughs> well, an it, and it did, and I think you know this won't be the last that we see of Jordy. I'm so, sure right. he'll go into some commentary position or you know sure. about football. A lot of people do that. Oh so. yeah, I mean very well spoken, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, you know it's just it, it all. The other thing is, I, I never begrudge people trying to like extend their careers, but it was kind of tough yet last year. I remember watching some Oakland Raider games. It was kind of tough to yeah, see to Jordy see Nelson yeah. there. Well, and I think you know the connection that Aaron Rodgers had with Jordy Nelson right. that was never replaced. And, and that that takes years to right. develop, and they just had like this chemistry. So, yeah. yeah, Jordy Nelson. I mean, it just it went by in the blink of an eye. All right, Rockland County is a county in in New York. It's it's a little bit north of New York City, about about ten miles north of New York City. Why do I tell you this? Well, here's the interesting story, and I want to get your reaction to it. Um, the county in the last six months has recorded 153 confirmed cases of measles, right? Now, measles, of course, and we've talked about this before, measles, you know, at one point in time, was a common childhood disease. It essentially has been eradicated, or at least was eradicated, because of, you know, vaccinations. Measles is highly contagious um, in that it's it's one of these things that um, if, if you – if you have measles, and the problem is you can have measles for a couple days before you actually know you have measles, before you have the breakout. And, you know, one of the things that can happen is, you know, if, if you cough or things like that, that can potentially spread the, the measles virus. You know, it can be it can linger in the air. It could be airborne and stuff like that. So the problem is, you know, you you, you can you can be exposed to somebody that has measles and you don't know it. Now, for a lot of people, they've been vaccinated, um, so it's not a problem. But there are some people, first of all, if, if you're very young, if you've got children that are very young, they haven't had vaccinations because they're not old enough to get them. You have all sorts of other people that have compromised immune systems who, who can't get the measles vaccine because they've got compromised immune systems. But it's not a problem necessarily because, you know, measles has been, in fact, eradicated. Well, all right, this, there's this county in New York. Like I say, it's Rockland County. 153 confirmed cases of measles in the past six months. Most of the outbreak has been confined to Orthodox Jewish communities in a couple of the towns because many of those people in these communities oppose vaccinations for religious reasons. 
And, you know, health inspectors, as they've tried to vaccinate children, they faced increasing resistance from unvaccinated families. People just aren't cooperating. But you, you have this this measles epidemic that, that's going on. And like I say, you know, for a lot of people, and if you were a certain age before they developed the vaccines, you know, maybe you had measles in, in your childhood. And for most people, it it's not a life or death thing. It's you're uncomfortable for a while and then you've had it and then you've got immunity for it moving forward. But there's some people um, who, you know, measles can be a, a fatal disease. So anyhow, they're starting to have this outbreak because you have these people who are refusing to get vaccinated. So here's what they have done. And this is what I want to talk to you about. New York County, Rockland County, they have now declared a state of emergency. And what they have said is that unvaccinated minors are now banned from all public places. So what the rule is, is that, okay, if you're not vaccinated, okay, that's that's fine. You know, we can't force you to be vaccinated. But effective midnight, well, effective midnight Tuesday, so I think that was probably last night, um, unvaccinated minors are not permitted in any public places. That includes restaurants, schools, shopping centers, and places of worship. So if the kid, now, you know, it's not uncommon, and I've heard of places to say, all right, if the kids are unvaccinated, they're not going to be allowed to go to school. But this extends it. It says, essentially, if your child is unvaccinated, that child is not permitted to be in a public place. Um, They say that what will happen is if, if minor children are found in unvaccin- unvaccinated minor children are found in public places. The parents face up to six months in jail or a fine of up to $500 or both. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this an overreaction? New York is saying, hey, look, we, we've got to, we think kids should be vaccinated there's this epidemic that is going on. If you choose not to have your kids vaccinated, that's your decision. But for the next 30 days, at least, while this epidemic is raging, no unvaccinated minors in public places. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this big brother, is this government going too far? Or is this a reasonable public health measure in the face of a measles epidemic. 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 217. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. It's a rite of passage for every Brewers fan as the boys of summer are back to defend their National League Central Division crown. Don't miss WTMJ's opening day live as we broadcast live from Miller Park tomorrow. That's opening day. Hear from players, coaches, Mr. Baseball himself, Bob Euchre, as the Brewers get set to kick off their 2019 championship season. It's opening day live starting at 9 a.m. tomorrow, sponsored by Century Foods, Outdoor Living Unlimited, and Tayback Law. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Chris in Greenfield. Hi, Chris. Hello. Uh, Yes, I do agree that um, they should be fined if their children make other people sick. Um, it could be a life and death situation in, in many cases. And years back, um, if people were sick, 
in a family. The whole family would be quarantined. The health department would, you know, paste something on their door so that they would, other people would know not to come to that house for a while. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, for the common good. They well, should now, definitely be quarantined. Okay, now you start off by saying they should be fined if they make somebody sick. This rule would say that it doesn't matter whether somebody actually gets sick or not. It doesn't matter whether the kid has measles if they're unvaccinated, period, and they're in a public place, then the parents could get fined. Does that take it too far? Actually, no, I don't think it does because I think parents, I am all for vaccination and it has been proven, you know, I know for a while they were thinking that, you know, um, autism and that could come from these vaccinations, but it has been proven that that is not the case. And and there's just too many people, smallpox, everything, when you think about it, all of our vaccinations, you know, are there for a reason. And thank God that we've got them. Well, you know, I got to tell you, Chris, see, I'm I'm sort of with you on this. I was, uh, you know, I've been traveling quite a bit lately. I've been on airplanes and stuff. And that's always kind of in the back of my mind about, okay, what if, you know, what if you're on the plane and you've got, you know, somebody behind you, you don't know where that person's from. And there it sounds like they're coughing up a lung. And I'm thinking, I I don't know, do I still have an immunity from measles? I, I just, I never had measles when I was a kid. I just know I don't want to get measles as, as an adult. I guarantee you that. It's always kind of in the back of my mind about that stuff. And, yeah, if you haven't been vaccinated and you're you're young, yes, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I think that you got to be out of public places, at least while there's an epidemic raging. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm old enough that I did have measles when I was a child. I had chicken pox and mumps. So, you know, none of those were fun. Right. And as you get older, it's more severe reaction to your body when you do get it. Right. So, again, it could be a life and death situation. You're right. Thanks for calling. I guess that's that's I mean, look, I, I, I don't. Whenever we talk about the should vaccinations be mandatory and stuff, we, you know, we get a lot of people who just, you know, have various, various issues because of what they've, they've read and things like that. And I, I guess my, my bottom line is I don't have an issue with vaccinations, but the, if, if you're going to make the decision that you're not going to have your kids vaccinated, that, that's fine. But at the same time, I then don't think it's unreasonable for other people to say, okay, if you make that decision, you're not going to have your kids vaccinated, well, then, then you, you can't send them to public schools. Or, yeah, then we're not going to allow them to be, again, in these other gatherings, especially when there's a measles epidemic that's breaking out, because they'll be inclined to get it, and then they can pass it on to other people. It's for the kids' good, and it's for the general public's good. Alex in Germantown. Hi, Alex. You're on WTMJ. Hey, how are you doing? Good. What do you think? I haven't got measles yet, so I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't got measles either, um, so I'm pretty happy about that. Um, I think that the whole jail, you know, is kind of extreme. If they're, you know, saying, you know, if you don't get your kids vaccinated, you know, there's some sort of, you know, six months of jail time. I think that's a little extreme. Um you know, actually just thinking, I'm actually going to be in the New York area in a couple of weeks with my wife and my mom. So I'm thinking, I mean, you most likely should find these parents if they're not going to get their kids vaccinated. But in a sense, you know, don't isn't it common sense, like, to not go in a public place if you're facing something that's, you know, so highly contagious like people? Yeah, well, you would you would think so, but I mean, some of us would argue that it's it's common sense to get your kids vaccinated, and you know, and the interesting thing about this is, I mean, obviously, if the kid has measles, 
well, you don't want to take them in the public place. But this applies to anybody that's not vaccinated. So, I mean, my guess is 95% of the people um, who this would potentially cover, they're not going to have measles and they're probably not going to get measles. But if you get measles, it's a big deal. So sure. thank yeah no thanks for the call good good luck in New York and again yeah, this applies to minor children and that because the outbreak the, the way the outbreak has worked out it, it's been primarily minor children and it does it does appear to be conf- not exclusively confined but it's largely the outbreak has been in in a couple Orthodox Jewish communities like I say where there's religious objections to having the vaccinations but this is this is the consequence of that Rose in Waukesha hi Rose on WTMJ. Hi, I also had measles when I was a kid, and they were awful. It was just the most awful thing ever. But um, it's funny that you're talking about this. I was telling your screener that they just had an episode on Madam Secretary on Sunday about the exact topic you're talking about. Really? There was a yeah. There was um, two people with little kids that came back from another country, right. and one of them had been vaccinated, and the other one had not been. And the little girl that had not been vaccinated ended up getting encephalitis from it because the fever was so high and they couldn't bring it down. But I I agree they should ban people that are not vaccinated from coming into public places because. It's a dangerous disease, and people don't realize just how bad it can get. Well, that, I mean, thanks for calling. I mean, that's kind of, I guess that's sort of where I come down on on this as well. Now, this seems to be an extreme example, and they're doing it. It's for 30 days. It's because they hope that this epidemic kind of ebbs. So if they were talking about doing this permanently, I would have a different position. But for, for the short term, from a public health concern, I think I think it is a reasonable provision. Now, obviously, you don't want to see this become like a stopo situation where you're banging on doors and you're you know checking to see who lives behind whose house or whatever. You know, I, I, you don't want to see it become that. But I, I think if this is a way to discourage people who have unvaccinated kids from going out into these public places where the kids can either catch the measles or the kids can pass the measles on to other people. I mean, I, I think that's a reasonable sort of thing. I mean, again, it's part of the thing because measles is so contagious and because, again, you have a kid that's got measles and it hasn't they haven't shown up yet and they're sitting in a Denny's restaurant and the kid coughs. Those germs can be out in the air for a couple hours, and the next person that sits down at the Denny's, you know, you bring your baby in, and you know, you put your baby, you know, on in the car seat on the thing. You, you, that kid can get measles, and I think that's that's where the interest has to lie. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a legal challenge to this. I would expect there's going to be a legal challenge to it, but I think the authorities are within their rights to do this. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner, so very glad to have you with us. All right. Federal District Judge Lynn Edelman, very, very liberal, um, got it wrong on this one. And here's why. There's a story in the Journal Sentinel. They have a postal worker, U.S. postal worker, who stole, wait for this, 6,600 Milwaukee area greeting cards, sentenced to probation. Now here's the story. Um, person's name, Ebony L. Smith. 
Um, she admitted to what she was doing is she would steal greeting cards. And she admitted to stealing over 6,600 greeting cards um, in Wauwatosa. Here's the deal. Um, she, what, what had happened is she, she admitted to doing this between April of 2017 and January of 2018. Um, what happened was the, all these people in Wauwatosa started complaining to the, the post office that they weren't receiving greeting cards. Smith was identified as the mail carrier in those areas. She had started working in March of 2015. Officials caught her after using a test greeting card with a transmitter that signaled when it was o- signaled when it was open. So here's what she was doing. She gets hired, goes to work for the Postal Service in March of 2015. Um, within two years, and I, I guess, I mean, they, they say they, they can prove it by then, but she's stealing everything that comes through. Now, why are you doing this? Well, because a lot of times when you send greeting cards, it it has cash in it. For example, my niece, she's a sophomore at the San Diego State. So I will, on on Valentine's Day, for example, you know, I, I, we sent out Valentine, thanks to my wife for remembering this. You know, we, we sent her a Valentine's Day card and I had a $20 bill in it. Now, I, I could have written her a check, yeah, but I had a $20 bill in it, you know, and we, we sent it out. So sometimes people will do that. So apparently what happened is this woman, at one point in time, um, an auto salvage yard contacted the Postal Service after they discovered 6,625 first-class greeting envelopes and 540 personal checks, some still inside the greeting cards, um, stuck in in a back of of this place, okay, at the auto salvage yard. So what, what happened is, obviously, she realized that, hey, if it's a greeting card, maybe a lot of times it's not going to have any money in it. Other times, maybe it's going to have a check, and that's not going to help me. But, you know, there will be other occasions where it's going to be, you know, Uncle Jeff sending, you know, his niece a $20 bill. So I don't know for sure how much it was that she was was able to steal. She admitted to stealing mail about one or two days a week, taking cash to pay bills and to take care of her children. So she's stealing blind. And her sentence is, little bit of home confinement and probation. Here's why I think she should have gone to prison. I understand that prison, typically, you send all right. You, you send people for committing crimes of violence, and I understand maybe there's people that think stealing mail isn't that big a deal. But but here's this idea that we talk about. It, it's the idea of general deterrence. And this, whenever we have one of these quote unquote white collar criminal cases where people steal money not by taking a gun and sticking it in somebody's face that has the threat of violence, but they steal money by doing things like this. The bottom line is there needs to be a penalty. There needs to be a deterrent. And, for example, here you have somebody that's working for the Postal Service. I love postal workers, okay? I, I know a lot of people listen to the show, postal workers, when they're on their routes and things like that. Technically, they're not supposed to, but I know they do that anyways. But But here's the bottom line. I'm sure... People are tempted. Maybe you work in a job that you handle money, and, and maybe maybe you are tempted, or your coworker might be tempted to steal. All right, I know that happens a lot, and the truth of the matter is, I know that they they we just don't catch people every time they choose to do it. But when you catch them, you've got to make examples of them. And for, in this case, the integrity of the Postal Service, the last thing the Postal Service needs 
is postal employees thinking that, well, maybe it's worth the risk. If I go ahead and I, I do this and I steal, I, and th- this person, she apparently got away with this for a couple of years. I mean, you're talking about two or three times a week taking all the greeting cards that were in her assigned area. You know, you need to have a penalty. You need to say for the whole concept of what they used to call general deterrence. Here, if you do this, you know, and you get caught, we're going to, there's going to be consequences beyond just losing your job because we want to, quote, unquote, send a message to other people that if you think about doing this, you're going to have consequences as well. And candidly, probation and stay at home as part of home confinement, that's not a deterrent. That is a slap on the wrist. And that's why, in my opinion, this judge once again got it really, really wrong. Okay, let us switch gears. What is one of the biggest complaints that all of us who drive around on the roadways have? It's the other guy. It's the it's the people, you know, who are driving and they're not paying attention. It's the people who, all right, it, it's the folks who are texting. It's the folks that are turning the radio dial and shouting at the guy on the radio instead of paying attention. It's the women that are putting on makeup. It's the guys that are putting on makeup. It's the folks that are trying to unwrap their burger doodle in the front seat while they're driving. It's the whole concept of distracted driving, right? And, you know, we passed laws saying don't text and drive and all all those things. Well, here here's a different kind of suggestion. To, that would do away with this. Gru, have you ever, can you drive a stick shift? Can you drive, you can drive a manual transmission car. Huh, have, have you, so you've done, did you learn to drive on that? You have had two or three cars that are stick shifts. All right, so you are a manual transmission driver. You're driving the manual transmission, so you've got the foot on the brake and the foot on the gas and the foot on the clutch, and you're, you know, your right hand is like moving the, the stick shift and stuff. Is it, based on your experience, possible to, I don't know, unwrap that thing from Burger Doodle while you're doing all that? Extremely difficult. Yes, extremely difficult. If you're driving a stick shift, it is very because you you got all sorts of other stuff going on. Not saying it's impossible, but it, it's tough to be texting. It's tough to be on your cell phone because all your hands are going to be in place. You you are you know your hands, your fingers, your feet. They're all going to be being used. All right. So this is interesting. Um, at one point in time, I, I think there were a lot of people that knew how to drive manual transmission cars. Now I want to be honest. I don't know if I could do it anymore. I I never had a manual transmission car. I have driven manual transmission cars, but not for a long, long time. I I would need to, I would need to take a vehicle and go to some high school parking lot and drive around and try to try to figure out. Maybe it's like riding a bicycle and it all comes back to you. I I don't know. It's been decades since I I did that. And candidly, because I don't want all that effort and all, I, I would never buy a manual transmission car. I was looking at the numbers. The most recent information I have is, okay, here here we go. Uh, let's see. In 2012, stick shifts, manual transmission cars, represented 6.8% of U.S. vehicle sales. Actually, I'm surprised it was that high, high a number. 6.8% in 2012. That number 
has now dropped. The estimate are is, is it's about 3.5% in 2018. So only 3.5% of, uh, again, the vehicles sold in 2018 have manual transmission cars because it's kind of fallen out of favor. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I know people who to this day, for example, a very good friend of mine who's in the market for a new car, he loves, he absolutely loves driving manual transmission cars for all sorts of reasons, including he thinks it's more fun and you get better gas mileage and all that type of stuff. If more people drove manual transmission cars, I think you'd have a lot less distracted driving, simply because there's all this stuff going on. All right, will they ever make a comeback? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, look, right now we're moving completely in the opposite direction. Now we've got the side cameras. We've got the rear view cameras. We've got the side view mirrors that beep if somebody's in your blind spot. All great sort of stuff. But do you miss the manual transmission vehicles? 414-799-1620. Would you consider buying a manual transmission vehicle. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're back. Joan in Whitefish Bay. Hi, Joan. You're first. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. It's a good topic. I love my stick shift. Okay. I've only always had one. And my kids say, don't worry, Mom. Nobody's going to carjack you. They're going to look in there, and they're not going to be able to drive the darn thing. And it's true. And when I got this last one was in 2001, so it's, you know, a few years old. It was cheaper for a stick shift as opposed sure. excuse me, to an automatic for the gas. That's no longer true. Yeah, no. And it, my right. kids say, why don't you get a new car, Mom? <laughs> And I'm 91. I'm not getting a new car. You have to have lessons on how to drive it with all that technology. Right. You, you don't need all that stuff. You're set. Thanks for the call, no. Joan. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, I'm going to get as many calls as I can. Okay, so Joan is driving her 2001. All right. Emily in Waukesha. Hi, Emily. You're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. So I'm 32. I'm driving right now, and I have a stick shift car. Okay. Um, we have yeah, we have five cars, and four of them are stick shift. So um, I guess I'm a fan. But I would say pretty much all of my friends that are my age have never driven a stick shift car and have no idea how to, <laughs> and would definitely never buy one. Well, so right, I think d- part of the decrease, yeah. No, I was just going to say. I mean, so the uh, from the perspective of of paying attention and stuff. I, you gotta be, you got a lot going on when you're driving that stick shift vehicle. You don't have time to be texting or anything like that, right? I would challenge your producer. I can definitely eat a Culver's custard uh, while I'm driving, but <laughs> um, a lot of practice, maybe. Right. Um, the, I think the one of the reasons it's going away is um, sort of the last bastion was sports car enthusiasts and things like that, and um, the dual clutch or paddle shifts technology has come so far now right um, you know more advanced than the actual old school stick shift and so there's no longer an advantage there and the other reason i think is you know manufacturers are eliminating stick shift or manual transmission options from their lineup right it costs them money to offer multiple transmission offerings and if there aren't enough people taking advantage of that it doesn't make sense for them to put the research and development into designing an extra transmission emily what do you like best about driving the stick shift uh i think it's 
more engaging. It's a little mm-hmm. more. It gives me more options when I'm feeling sporty, and uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a car enthusiast. So yeah, it's, and it, so it's more fun, in other words. Definitely. Okay. All right. Very cool. Thanks for going. Thirty-two years old, and you're right. My guess is, my guess is, none of your contemporaries um, have 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 any clue as to what that is. How do you do that? What's it? What are you doing with your feet there, Barb in Milwaukee? Hi, Barb. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, I have a 2015 manual trans yes manual transmission five speed, right? And I wouldn't do anything without it. Um, you have more control on the road. Um, I don't get stuck in stuck in snow. <laughs> right. Right. I'm sorry. Your 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 phone is the the, the car is sounding great. The cell phone was dropping off there. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's try to sneak in a couple more calls. Let's talk to Stephen and Eagle. Hi, Stephen. You're on WTMJ. Hey, how's it going? Real well, thank you. Okay, are you a stick shift guy? Oh, I'm a, I love stick shift, and it's the only vehicle I'll drive. I actually have two of them right now: a 2012 Volkswagen Golf R and a 2013 Chevy Cruze. Okay, what do you like about them the most? Well, I like it so that you uh, you basically have the control of your vehicle. You have the option for more power and more performance, but right. you also are able to stay more focused on the road because you have a lot to pay attention to. Right. I mean, it's not you know it, it's not a it's not a bad thing at all. It's just a lot of people I think are more afraid of driving stick yeah. than anything, and it's really not intimidating as, as it was back in the old day from the mechanical clutch to the hydraulic. Right. It's, Right, I so mean, it's, it's easier. Yeah. Super simple. Well, plus, plus, it's it's pretty much auto theft proof because my guess is most of the people that would boost cars probably have no clue. They'd get into your car and they'd say, "How do I make this thing go?" Actually, that happened to me at a gas station. They jumped in my Chevy Cruze <laughs> and they stalled it out because it has a key fob. So I, <laughs> I leave it running. They stalled it out and they all got out of the car running, and the, the cops were just laughing. I was just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> "Thanks for the call." Well, I just, I mean, I just, I just kind of, I throw this out there because. I mean, we're, we hear all this stuff about self-driving cars and all this thing. I just kind of wonder, big picture, would we be better off going back to the future, you know, if we're concerned about distracted driving and, and going the other way and saying, okay, let, let's let's have more manual transmission cars. Tom in Pewaukee. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, How Tom. You? I'm well, thank you. Okay, should these make a comeback? Absolutely. I'm I'm 62 years old, and I can tell you for the first five or six years that I was driving, I drove and owned nothing but stick shift cars. And not only was it fun, but uh, I I would have a hard time believing that even back in that day, I was probably hard-pressed to shift gears and slide an eight-track tape into the <laughs> player and, and not be distracted. And sure. nowadays with auto-drive cars and automatics and everything going on, uh, yeah, I'd be a total advocate of going back to a stick shift. Do you think you think it'll ever happen, or or do we just you know because we are moving the other direction? The, the big thing now is self driving cars, so you don't essentially have to do anything, and instead of having to do all that work, I'm I'm not sure if we want to do all that work anymore. Yeah, I I don't think we do, but it sure would be fun. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for I just kind of throw this out there again. You know, we talk about all this distracted driving. What is the best way to reduce it, not eliminate it? Maybe it's going back to the future. Just saying. When we come back, we're going to find out what Scott Warris has on his mind on Wisconsin's afternoon news. Please hang around. This is Jeff Wagner.